A few weeks ago, I was reading in 1 Corinthians, and these verses kind of stood out to me. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as scripture said. The phrase that really stood out to me in these two verses was that first part. It says, I passed on to you what was most important and was passed on to me. And it got me asking myself asking these questions. Uh, what is it that, that Paul had passed on to this church um, that was of most importance, and who passed it on to Paul? Well, the answer to those were the things that he passed on to this church were the core doctrines, the core beliefs, the core foundational truths that he passed on to every church that he planted um, of the gospel. So for, uh, the core foundational truths, core foundational doctrines of the church. Who passed it on to Paul? Um, actually, two different people passed it on to Paul. One was the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul was a Pharisee, so he had memorized the Old Testament. And so when Paul was confronted on the Damascus Road with Jesus and, and decided to follow him, the Holy Spirit also began to teach him how to apply that Old Testament that he'd learned uh, all through his adult life at that point, um, how to apply that to who the Messiah was, what the gospel was, what this new person Jesus was all about. And so he, the Holy Spirit helped him understand Scripture from that perspective. The other thing that happened was there's about three years that are a little bit silent on what Paul did after he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And many commentators believe that Jesus personally um, instructed Paul during this time, a time of learning and growing about uh, who, the, who Jesus was and how the gospel uh, can impact somebody's life. So there was a direct from Jesus, and there was also the Holy Spirit that directed his understanding at that time. So what are some of the core doctrines of the church? What are some of the core doctrines that Paul would have passed on to this new fledgling church in Corinth at that time? Well, they're the same doctrines we have today. And here's some of them. God, one God, creator, holy, perfect, all-powerful, all-knowing, consisting of three divine persons, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, which we call the Trinity. So it's not three individual gods. It's one God, but made up of those three parts. That's what he would have passed on to the church in Corinth. The Bible, we would say both Old and New Testaments are God's words. It is without error and should be believed, trusted, and obeyed. In Paul's day, the Old Testament was their scripture. But the apostles' teaching had authority as well. And that became God's word to the people in, in the New Testament. And m most of those from the apostles' teaching we have in the New Testament today. So the apostles' teaching, the New Testament, and the Old Testament are what we would say are the authoritative word of God. What's the human condition? Man is created in God's image, but because of Adam and Eve's sin, we are born with a sin nature. Only through Jesus Christ has salvation been made available to us. So Paul was, would set that doctrine as a solid part of what the church um, was founded on, salvation in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus, who was he? He was 100% man, 100% God. He was the promised Messiah, born of a virgin, and lived a sinless life. He died and rose again. His shed blood on the cross was a perfect sacrifice for our sins. His death and resurrection are the only grounds for salvation. He would have also taught about the Holy Spirit, who convicts us of sin. He regenerates, he indwells, he guides, he equips, he empowers believers. He would teach about the church, 
the church was compromised of true believers who had been justified by faith alone. About Christian living, he would have said, God commands us to love and love him and supremely, love him supremely and others sacrificially. We are to care for each other, have compassion to the poor and justice for the oppressed. We are to share the gospel in word and deed and make disciples among all people. What about the doctrine of Christ's returning? He would have taught them that Jesus will come back and judge the earth and set up a kingdom. What about eternal life? He would have said, available, it's available to all who believe the gospel, repenting of sin and receiving Jesus. Hell is a real place where those who reject Jesus will spend eternity. Those that are believers will spend eternity with God in a new heaven and a new earth. Those same core doctrines, those foundational pieces that he built into that church, that were built into all the New Testament churches at that time, are the same, remain the same core doctrines that we have in our church today. I'm going to just give you three quick points today. And the first one is this. Doctrines are the core building blocks of a healthy church. Paul, along with Silas and Timothy, planted this church in Corinth. Now, Corinth was a city um, that was one of the best-known cities in the world at that time. It had great trade. It had a strong economy because it was a trading center by land and by sea. It had lots of culture. It had lots of religions, but it was also a very immoral city, lots of immoral freedom. High up on a hill, was, there was a temple. And the temple was a temple of Aphrodite, who was the goddess of love and fertility. And they say there was a thousand prostitutes, both male and female, that were involved in that temple worship. Paul spent about two years establishing the gospel and planting this new church. The first believers were a married couple. You may have heard of them, Aquila and Priscilla. The church grew up with men and women, Romans, Jews, and Greeks, and slaves and masters all in this church. So a very eclectic church that, Paul, that started in Corinth by Paul. First and second Corinthians are two letters that we have recorded in scripture of letters that Paul wrote the Corinthian church. Now, we believe there's other letters, but those are two that we know of that were recorded in scripture. So why did people, why did Paul write these letters to the Corinthians? So he had established his church, was there for a couple of years, went on to plant other churches, and on this journey, he ended up getting a letter, a letter that was explaining some of the things that were happening in this church in Corinth, this very new fledgling church in Corinth that was concerning. So I got this question, have you ever gotten that awkward call from the principal at your kid's school? You know, the one that says, hi, can we talk? Well, we got one of those when our son was a senior in high school. Uh, there was a senior day. It wasn't a skip day, but it was a planned senior day where the senior class was supposed to go out and have a picnic and go hiking. And our son decided that that was kind of lame. And so he and a couple friends asked if they could go shopping in Stillwater. We lived in Wisconsin at the time. And we said, hey, that's up to you. But we, if the school calls, we're not going to lie. We're not going to tell, tell them that you're sick. We're not going to do any of that kind of stuff. So it's on you, consequences. And so he said, okay, we're skipping. And so um, before he got out the door that day, we get this phone call from the principal. Hey, Brian, can we talk? And that was a little awkward. Um, and I knew the principal. And so he said, I know, uh, you, you know that this is a senior class day. Uh, Josh isn't here. And here's the three options Josh has. He can get in the car and get over here before the bus leaves uh, for senior, uh, the senior day. Or 
Um, he can come to school and spend the day at school doing whatever he want, whatever you do at school when all the seniors are gone. Um, or he can decide to skip, and uh, he will not be able to walk for, with graduation, his graduating class, and get his diploma until he makes up that day. Now, at that time, the school, like many around here, the seniors get out a couple days early, so he could have made up that day in between with all the rest of the underclassmen, or he could have come back during summer school and gotten his diploma later on. So we told Josh, hey, here's your three options, and his decision was that he was going to go to school. He, w- he already decided that the whole thing was lame with the rest of the seniors. So he decided to go to, s- to school and, and just spend the time. He spent the time in the art room and the weight room and all kinds of other things that he did. Had a great day at school. But uh, it was one of those really awkward moments when you get that phone call. Well, that was the kind of letter that Paul got from these people in Corinth saying, can we talk? We've got this stuff going on in our church that you need to address. They said there was false teachers that had come into the church in Corinth. <clears throat> Their teaching was dismantling the doctrinal foundation that Paul had laid in that church. And because of that, sin and immorality had crept in to the church because of this false teaching, even to the point where the church was celebrating a man that was sleeping with his father's wife. So how did these false teachers, or what were the false teachers teaching that was changing this doctrine? Well, one of the things they were teaching was Gnosticism. Um, and Gnostics were people that separated the body from the spirit. So the body, they said, is, is evil. It's going to do what it's going to do. It's no big deal. It's just don't even worry about that. But the spirit, you need to get spiritually enlightened. So you can be spiritually enlightened and still do all this other stuff because the body doesn't matter. It's just spiritual enlightenment that matters. And so that made sense why a church, those that were going down the wrong path, would celebrate somebody that was sleeping with his father's wife because, well, the body's just going to do what it's going to do. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you do in the body. As long as that person is spiritually enlightened, maybe he was coming across as very spiritually enlightened, so they're celebrating that even though he was doing these things over here that we would say would be wrong. They were teaching that there are, very, there are many ways that you can get this spiritual enlightenment. So, yes, God might be one of those ways, but the gods that all these other temples, they get some insights into the spiritual understanding as well. So it didn't matter where you were getting the spiritual insight as long as you're getting it from somebody. So we weren't talking about one true God. They were talking about many gods that could give you the spiritual insight. Um, they were talking about Jesus being a spiritual man that he got the spirit, they would say, at his baptism, and it left before he died on the cross because the body didn't matter. So he was a spiritually enlightened teacher, but he wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't one that came, that bodily resurrected from the dead. Um, The Holy Spirit doesn't really matter because he convicts of sin, and it doesn't matter what the body does. It's about the spiritual enlightenment. Um, Christian living why do you have to worry about what you do to your neighbor or who you do something wrong against? Because that's done in the body, and the body's evil is just going to do what it's going to do as long as you're becoming spiritually enlightened. Jesus isn't coming back because the body didn't resurrect from the dead. There's no hope for that. It's all about the spiritual enlightenment. In eternal life, there's no heaven and hell. It's all about the spiritual enlightenment. So they had changed some of that teaching, even to the point where they were saying, You know, Paul, this authority of Scripture and the authority of an apostle, 
I mean, who was he anyway? He was a guy that worked with his hands. He was a tent maker. You guys didn't support him. He had dirt under his fingernails. He had kind of ratty clothes because he was working all day. Sometimes he was even homeless. Who is this guy that has this authority? Look at us. I mean, we have nice clothes. We have manicured hands. We ride the latest model of the donkey or whatever it was that they were riding at the time. Um, we, we speak very well. We're articulate. Paul was just a common kind of person. Um, we're the kind of people that have authority because look at us. God must be blessing us because of all of these things you see. Paul didn't ask for any money, but we're going to ask that you pay us to come and teach you. And the more you pay us, the more we're going to teach you about spiritual enlightenment. So those were the things going on in that Corinthian church at the time. As the core doctrines were changed, the church began to unravel. Losing their foundation led to morality issues, selfishness, misuse of gifts, jealousy, and discrimination. Our beliefs inform our actions. Let me say that again. Our beliefs inform our actions. Doctrines are the core building blocks of a healthy church. And that's why Paul said, I pass on to you what was most important and what it was also passed on to me. Number two, removing or changing a doctrine leads to a dysfunctional gospel, disharmony in the church, and a failed witness in a community. I brought a visual aid today. A-E-I-O-U and sometimes Y. Now, we've grown up with those. Those are our vowels in our language. Uh, we have consonants too, but these are the vowels in our language. Uh, when I was at, my first college I went to was Eastern Washington State University. I was a pre-med major. That's another whole long story. Um, but I took an e- uh, education class. And in this education class, um, I got to observe some classrooms. Now, this school was known for its education major, and so they had their own classroom, grade school classroom, on campus. It was uh, in the round. It was pie-shaped classrooms. You could get up, um, which I had to do for so many hours, get up and observe classrooms through one-way mirrors on the top and look down on on classes that are being taught. Um, They were doing all kinds of new experimental things with math and teaching and, you know, English and all that kind of stuff, because as they tried different experiments, and if it worked, then they would pass it on to other uh, education systems, and supposedly it was the newest and greatest thing. Uh, One of the things I saw, which it's like, yeah, this doesn't make sense to me, uh, was in a reading and and teaching uh, English kinds of things, there was a kid that was spelled elephant, E-L-E-F-A-N-T, and they were saying, hey, that's fine, no problem. He'll learn about pH later. You know, we'll just let them do what they do and write it the way they want to write it, and they'll learn those other uh, exceptions to the rules later on. It didn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, Fast forward 10 or 15 years. Our kids are now in the age group where they are starting to read, and they're in a school system in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. And in that school system, lo and behold, this teaching method was in our school system in Sheboygan. It had come to that way. Um, And... I just didn't see that being a good way to teach how to read. And so we bought a bunch of blocks, smaller than this, sat on the living room floor and started teaching phonics. Uh, this, is, this letter is how you, you know, the A does, has these sounds and the S has this sound. I put a couple letters together and they would sound it out and they would be able to read. Our kids became good readers um, because they were able to get back to the basics and read. Um, The vowels are important building blocks of our language, of course, including consonants. But without them, our language is compromised. 
because it's hard to understand if we don't have all of the tools that make our language what it is. Uh, some of you remember back in the day when we had flip phones um, and when texting first started. And texting was hard on a flip phone because you had to do multiple presses on each letter to get the right one. Um, and so they had what they called text speech that was developed at that time. And text speak would say that you only had 160 characters that you could put in a text message. And so they would start eliminating some of the, the letters in the text speak so that it would shorten up the words so that you could get more things in a text. So things like thanks, T-H-N-K-S, and we still sometimes use that today, or L-O-L, laugh out loud, was one of the things. Well, there was some of us as adults, and we had kids in our high school group that had phones at that time, they, they text something and it's like, I have no clue what they're telling me. I mean, there's all these different abbreviations. There were even cheat sheets that were out on the internet on what these abbreviations were supposed to mean. So L, is that laugh out loud or is that lots of love or I don't know, it's something. Um, but it, it made the communication very messy because some of those consonants and those vowels weren't included. Can you imagine if we um, had the choice of whether to use certain vowels? Like, We've been here almost 11 years, and I still don't know how to spell Lake Lahamadu. It's just hard for me to spell that. And so if I decided, you know, it's easier for me to spell Lake Lahamadu if I just take out the vowels, it would end up Lake Lumd. Lake Lumd. So we're going to go to the beach on Lake Lumd next week and go swimming. I mean, that just make, maybe it's easier for me to spell, but it doesn't make communication very easy. Or let's say that I just do not like the letter A. There's nothing about the shape I like, nothing about the sound I like. I just don't like it, so I'm never going to use it again. I'm just, going to, just not going to use it. So when I write somebody a letter, it's going to be from Lextry, not Alexandria. It's going to be from Lextry, Minnesota. I live in Lextry, Minnesota. So if you need to, to write me a letter, just put on Lextry, Minnesota, and it'll get to me. It doesn't work that way. You eliminate some things or change some things, and it changes the whole meaning. Vowels are foundational to our English language, just as doctrinal is foundation to our spiritual life, beliefs, and actions. We change or remove vowels from our language, and it changes the language and its meaning. We change or remove doctrine, and it changes our beliefs and understanding of God and his redemptive plan. So in this early church in Corinth... One of the things that was happening is they were removing the, the whole idea of Christ returning and the body, bodily resurrection. Um, so they're removing that idea of Christ returning to judge the earth um, and create a new heaven, a new earth. So what did that do? When you remove that part of a doctrine, it gives power to mankind. Now, God isn't coming back. God's a God of love. He's not going to come back to judge. We're going to, we're going to change that all around. And so now we don't have anybody or any consequence for sin because nobody's going to judge that. So it's up to us to make this utopia on earth because sin has no consequences. Changing one piece of that changes the whole meaning of the gospel. Or let's say we want to tweak the Bible. Um, Old, Testament, Old New Testaments are God's word. No, we want to tweak that because there's some parts of the Bible I really like. Some parts I don't like, so I'm just going to ignore those, and I'm just going to deconstruct the rest. So the Bible becomes a good book with great suggestions, but it's no longer the authority of God in our lives. 
Or let's say uh, the Bible becomes a proof text. You know, I find verses I like, and I'm going to start a cult or religion. I'm going to take these verses that I like, and I'm going to ignore the rest, and I'll just use that as a proof text. But either way, it's not God's authority in my life anymore. We've changed that doctrine, that core doctrine. Removing or changing a doctrine leads to dysfunctional gospel, disharmony the church, and a failed witness in our community. Point number three, we must pass on the important orthodox doctrines to the next generation as they were passed on to us. We pass those on in several different ways. And one of those ways is through our pastors and our teachers. Pastors and teachers must hold these doctrines in high regard. They need to be held accountable. We need to be held accountable to rightly dividing the word of truth. Church leaders, when recalling new pastors and teachers to our church, need to make sure that they are orthodox in their beliefs and their teaching. We have to vote in leadership team members that are orthodox in their doctrine and their understanding of Scripture to keep this orthodox doctrines solid in our church. John Wesley said, Give me a hundred preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I care not whether they are clergy or laymen. They alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. And I can tell you honestly and with confidence that your pastors and staff here hold fast to these orthodox doctrines of the church. Why is that so important? Well, Barna is a guy that does surveys, and you may have heard of Barna. He's done surveys among the Christian world and churches for many years. Well, 2004, almost 20 years ago, he did a survey, and this is what it said. Based on interviews with 601 senior pastors uh, nationwide, representing a random cross-section of Protestant churches, Barna reported that only half of the country's Protestant pastors, 51%, have a biblical worldview. Defining such a worldview as believing that absolute moral truth exists, that is based upon the Bible, and having a biblical view on six core beliefs, the accuracy of biblical teaching, the sinless nature of Jesus, the literal existence of Satan, the omnipresence and omniscience of God, salvation by grace alone, and the personal responsibility to evangelize. The researcher produced data showing that there are significant variations by denomination affiliation and other demographics. The most important part, Barna said, is that you can't give people what you don't have. You can't give people what you don't have. The low percentage of Christians who have a biblical worldview is a direct relation, a direct reflection of the fact that half of our primary religious teachers and leaders do not have one. In some denominations, the vast majority of clergy do not have a biblical worldview, and it shows up clearly in the data related to the theological views and the moral choices of people who attend those churches. Fast forward, 2022, so just a year, year and a half ago, another survey, a nationwide study of 1,000 Christian pastors found that just slightly more than one-third, 37% of the U.S. pastors hold a biblical worldview. The study showed that 41% of senior pastors, as compared to 28% of associate pastors, have a biblical worldview. Further, only 13% of teaching pastors and 12% of children's and youth pastors have a biblical worldview. The lowest level of biblical worldview was among executive pastors who only 4% of them holding consistently biblical beliefs 
and behaviors. Paul's word to Timothy was, in 1 Timothy 4.16, Keep a close watch on how you live and on your teaching. Stay true to what is right for the sake of your own salvation and the salvation of those who hear you. Pastors and teachers need to hold fast and teach those orthodox biblical doctrines within the church or the church will be compromised. Also, churches need to hold fast to those. You know, when I've told our students when they move to graduate from high school, go to college, move to another town, they get married, they go in the military, whatever, um, they need to find a church that holds solid biblical worldview and solid biblical core doctrines. And the way they do that isn't by first going to a website and checking out what their music is like, checking out what uh, the singles ministry is like or the adult ministry is like or men's ministry, women's ministry, whatever that is. Those are all great things. But the first page they should go to is that section on that website that says what we believe. So they can look out what the core doctrines, the core beliefs of those churches are before they look into what that church provides on the outside, because those core doctrines are the most important. You know, in rural America, we think of ourselves as very conservative, at least compared to bigger cities. Um, So we think that our, our beliefs are also more orthodox in the rural area than it is in the cities. I read a book uh, in January called The Forgotten Church. And this is a statement out of that book. Small towns often have, if they have anything, an assumed gospel. Don Carson wisely says that one generation believes the gospel, the next generation assumes the gospel, but the next generation denies the gospel. But with the data so clearly showing sin is reigning in small towns, we have to question if they haven't moved past an assumed gospel to a full-blown denial of the gospel. We have to guard the doctrine and the gospel in our church and in our lives. Parents, another way we pass this on to the next generation, the orthodox teachings and doctrines of the church is through parents. Deuteronomy 5 or 6, 6 through 7, and this is a very familiar verse to many of you, says, And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you are on the road. And we're going to bed, and you're getting up. Natural conversations about who is God? What is salvation? Some of you know just passes away. Is he in heaven? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? What is, what is salvation eternity all about? Those are natural conversations that we need to pass on to our kids so they understand what those core beliefs are. We've often heard in Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Great verse. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said it this way, train up a child in the way he should go, but be sure you go that way yourself. We have to show the ch- our kids and the people around us, not just with our words, but by our actions. Show our kids the way. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for making it so clear in your word what the core doctrines and the core beliefs are of the gospel. God, help us to live those out, to speak them, to know them, um, but pass them on to the next generation. Lord, thank you that we have salvation in you, and that can't be compromised. Thank you that you are the only way. Thank you that you love us and care for us. In Jesus' name, amen.